This is Night on Bald Mountain, a series of orchestral pieces written by Modus Mussorgsky over the course of almost 40 years. This particular rendition was performed by the Vienna Philharmonic in 1980. But odds are, if you know this piece, it isn't really from hearing it, but from seeing it. Night on Bald Mountain is the climax to the 1940 animated classic Fantasia. The segment stays true to the original piece's basis in Russian mythology and depicts the devil raising souls from the dead and calling demons to join him high on Bald Mountain. This is the second part of a three-part series on mining and labor. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 16, A Night on Blair Mountain. day, almost a hundred years later, the largest labor revolt in the history of the United States. It also takes the title of being the largest violent uprising since the Civil War. Now, that's a pretty mighty claim, so I suppose we should give some context to the whole thing. The Battle of Blair Mountain took place in West Virginia's Logan and Mingo counties, and logically, on the mountain itself. And it was not an isolated skirmish, but was rather a part of the larger narrative of the ongoing Cold Wars, a series of bloody battles in the Appalachians and Colorado, which lasted from around 1890 to 1930. The Cold Wars ravaged West Virginia from 1912 to 1921. Blair Mountain was the final battle. Signs of violent rebellion began to bubble to the surface in May 1920, thanks to the actions of a few agents from the notorious strike-breaking detective agency Baldwin Feltz, and the response of the disgruntled coal miners in Matawan, West Virginia. Matawan was laid out in 1890 and established in 1895 by the Norfolk and Southern Railway. If you were to visit the town today, you wouldn't see a whole lot. It's practically a single street. Population, 500. But if you look at the flood wall along the confluence of the Maid Creek and the Tug Fork River, you'd see something that seems out of place in this quiet, sleepy little town. Buildings and people etched into the concrete. A memorial for the Matawan Massacre. In 1920, after a nationwide coal miners' strike, negotiations gave the unionized workers a 27% wage increase. The prosperity never reached West Virginia, which had violently suppressed the rise of unions for decades. In response, the United Mine Workers began an aggressive campaign to organize miners in Mingo, 
Logan, and McDowell counties. As you might expect, the coal companies would not stand for it. They hired scores of private security to crush all attempts at organization. They fired any worker connected with the union and evicted them from their company-owned housing. But some refused to leave, and that is where our story begins. On the morning of May 19, 1920, twelve agents from the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency arrived at the Matawan train station. There they met with Albert Feltz, who, in his effort to end unionization on behalf of the Stone Mountain Coal Company, had unsuccessfully attempted to bribe Mayor Cable Testerman to install machine gun emplacements on roofs throughout town. The thirteen men then went to the nearby coal camp to evict the unionized miners. The first evictees were a family. The husband wasn't home when the detectives arrived, so the Baldwin Feltz agents forced the wife and children out of the house at gunpoint and threw all their things outside in the rain. The other miners in the camp, understandably, did not take this well. Word of the first eviction was quickly sent back to town, and the agents continued their work. After the day was done, the men had dinner at Madawan's Urias Hotel, which no longer exists, as they waited to depart to Bluefield on the five o'clock train. On their way to the station, the confrontation began. Town Sheriff Sid Hatfield, a member of the famous Hatfield clan, met the agents in the street, backed up with deputized miners. Unbeknownst to the Baldwin Feltz agents, they were being surrounded by armed and angry miners. Sheriff Hatfield told the agents that he had a warrant for their arrest, to which they replied that they had one for Sheriff Hatfield. Someone got the mayor. Cable Testerman examined the warrant, and as he yelled that the warrant was fake, a shot rang out, and Mayor Testerman fell. The sheriff immediately shot Albert Feltz. Lee Feltz, his brother, fled. And as miners opened fire on agents in the street, Hatfield tracked him down to the Matawan post office and shot him dead. In the end, ten died, three from town and seven from Baldwin Feltz. The state police took control of the town, and the sheriff's men peacefully surrendered their arms inside the town's hardware store. The Matawan massacre was over, but the violence far from it. There was one Feltz brother left alive, Thomas, and as Sid Hatfield accumulated celebrity from his role in the shootout, Thomas began to plan his revenge. A jury acquitted him of murder charges, but he would soon be ensnared by an infiltrator and spy for Baldwin Feltz, Charles Everett Lively. He operated a restaurant below a union meeting house and gave a secret testimony that Sid Hatfield and his deputy, Ed Chambers, had, in an attempt to force unionization in a Mohawk mine, encouraged miners to attack a non-union coal tipple, which is the structure used to load materials, particularly coal, into rail cars. The miners, supposedly organized by Hatfield, had been met with dogs and machine guns. And so it was that Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers had to travel to McDowell County to face conspiracy charges. Though they had the assurances of the county sheriff that they would be under protection, 
as the two unarmed men and their wives walked up the stairs to the McDowell County Courthouse in Welsh, West Virginia, agents of Baldwin Feltz opened fire, hitting Hatfield in the arm and chest multiple times, killing him instantly. Chambers was shot several times, and as he lay dead on the ground, Charles Everett Lively walked up to his body and shot him in the head. None of the detectives were convicted of the assassination. They all claimed that they acted in self-defense. As word spread of the killings, and it became clear that justice would never be served for the slaying of their folk heroes, angry miners began to come down from the mountains, and they brought their guns. Six days later, on August 7, 1921, Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney, two veteran labor organizers, held a rally in Charleston, West Virginia's capital. The two met with Governor Ephraim Morgan and presented him with a list of demands. The governor, unsurprisingly, refused. The miners grew more agitated. They wanted to march 50 miles to Mingo County to free the miners from the bondage of martial law. The famous organizer Mary Harris Jones, also known as Mother Jones, warned against it. She saw the risk of a bloody confrontation at Blair Mountain. But the miners had already made their decision. Now there was only one thing standing in their way. Sheriff Don Chafin. Ironically, Sheriff Chafin, violent and anti-union, was related to the same historic family as the violent and pro-union Sheriff Hatfield. In order for the marching miners to reach Mingo County, they had to go straight through Logan. And that was where Don Chafin planned on stopping them, right on Blair Mountain. Sheriff Chafin got the chance to use the plan he'd been setting up for the past few months. At approximately two in the morning on August 25th, he powered on the fire siren in Logan, West Virginia, giving the sign to his forces to assemble. They totaled around 700 mine guards, volunteers, and deputies that he'd been training for two months, as well as three biplanes rented from private owners. They had accumulated stashes of machine guns and erected earthwork fortifications on the sides of Blair Mountain. By morning, his forces had assembled on the slopes, and they were prepared for the first day's skirmishes. Though we don't know the exact numbers of either force, around 10,000 miners began the slow march towards the mountain, while almost 2,000 eventually sought to defend it. The original organizers, Keeney and Mooney, had been charged with murder and fled to Ohio. Control of the army would go to Bill Blizzard, who would remain their general throughout the entire battle. After a few small engagements between the two armies, the next day, President Warren Harding threatened to send in federal troops and bombers to quell the violence. Days earlier, Mother Jones had claimed she had received a letter from Harding himself supporting the struggles of the miners, and when it was proven to be a fake, she was driven from the march. On August 26th, the miners met with leadership of the United Mine Workers Union in the town of Madison, and were eventually convinced after a long meeting to turn back and start the long march home. Sheriff Chafin had different plans. West Virginia State Police made the move to arrest multiple march leaders, 
and as the situation escalated into a shootout, the miners strengthened in their resolve. There would be war, and there was nothing anybody could do to stop it. By August 29th, the battle was in full swing, and although Chafin's men, called the Logan Defenders, were vastly outnumbered, the striking miners were outgunned and outmaneuvered. From high above, Chafin's planes dropped both gas and explosive bombs left over from the First World War on the towns of Jeffrey, Sharples, and Blair. On September 1st, Sheriff Chafin established a defensive perimeter around the city of Logan, hoping to keep the miners from pushing through to their final destination, which they almost succeeded in doing several times. By September 2nd, federal troops arrived to quell the violence, and the miners simply stopped fighting, supposedly because they didn't want to fight the same men they had fought with in World War I, but most likely because they would have lost badly. On the march back to their homes, the miners realized that they would face serious consequences if they were ever linked to the rebellion, so they hid their guns and any evidence of their fighting wherever they could, in trees, buried underground, in rivers and rock fissures. After the battle, almost a thousand miners were indicted for murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and treason against the state of West Virginia. Though, thanks to a few pro-Union juries, not all served time, and the last miner received parole around 1925. After his victory at Blair Mountain, Sheriff Chafin began to brazenly flout the law, and in 1924 he was arrested for moonshining and sentenced to two years in a federal penitentiary. He received parole and used the significant wealth he accumulated through deals with coal companies to live large until his death in 1954. Bill Blizzard was tried for treason and acquitted. One of Sheriff Chafin's unexploded bombs was used as evidence during his trial. After long simmering internal politics came to a head, he was expelled from the United Mine Workers Union. He retired to a farm in the west of the state and died in 1958 at the age of 65. When asked if he was the general of the miners' army, he would wryly reply, What army? I guess the boys will listen to me all right. In 2008, Blair Mountain was added to the NHRP. As you may have come to expect if you've been listening to this series so far, management opposed the move. Arch Coal, a subsidiary of Peabody Energy and Massey Energy, two of the largest coal producers in the nation, owned the rights to the land. They wanted to mine and blast away the mountaintop, essentially turning a sobering historic site into a flat sheet of rock. And so Blair Mountain was removed and placed in review. I'm happy to say that in July of this year, the Park Service invalidated their nine-year-old decision to remove the site from the register, and now Blair Mountain will be preserved for generations, free from the destructive mining that caused thousands to flock to her slopes. Over one million rounds were fired during the Battle of Blair Mountain, and over a hundred people were killed. To this day, archaeologists still find the rifles, shotguns, pistols, bullets, and more hidden by their cheating miners 97 years ago. 
so if you ever happen to wander through the storied woods of Logan County, be careful. You might just step on some hidden history. This has been the second part of a three-part series on mining and labor, though you'll have to wait until next week to find out the subject of our final part. We will be moving one state to the west. To end this week's episode, I'd like to play you a song about a small Kentucky town completely wiped off the map by the energy industry. Listen to Hidden History online at hiddenhistory.show or on air on 88.3 FM WDCV every Wednesday at 5.30. Look for Hidden History on your Apple Podcasts app or wherever fine podcasts are found. Here's Paradise by the legendary John Prine, and this is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. When I was a child, my family would travel down to western Kentucky where my parents were born. And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered so many times that my memories are worn. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away Well, sometimes we travel right down the Green River the abandoned old prison down by Avery Hill Where the air smelled like snakes and we'd shoot with our pistols But empty pop bottles was all we would kill And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train is hauled it away. Then the coal company came. With the world's largest shovel And they tortured the timber And stripped all the land Well, they dug for their coal Till the land was forsaken Then they rode it all down As the progress of man And Daddy, won't you take me Back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River Where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train is hauled it away When I die, let my ashes float down the Green River Let my soul roll on up to the Rochester Dam I'll be halfway to heaven with paradise wings just five miles away from wherever I am And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking 
Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away.